you're new here, just heads up. I'm pretty direct as a communicator. I mean, people who've been here, is this a, a, a fair assessment? Um, sometimes someone may use the term inappropriate. Is that fair? Uh, I don't know where the boundaries are sometimes, so I just kind of talk about everything. So I don't do this to shock anybody. I just am try, I'm trying to be honest about what I think people are thinking about in this subject. And what I want to do is bring the Bible to bear on this subject. And that's where we're going. And we're going to start in the Old Testament. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Genesis chapter 29. If you don't have your Bibles or your phones with your phone apps, that's cool. It'll be on the screen here. But I want to give you time to turn. Some people like to write notes or draw on the screen or whatever you do. So here we go. Genesis 29, starting in verse 18. We are looking at the story of Jacob and Rachel. You may have heard it before. We're just going to read two verses here because it gets a little weird. So here's a situation. Uh, Jacob uh, is going to find his wife, and he's thinking about getting married. So he would be in a disposition of someone who's at the counter, and he's trying to move towards the sink with somebody. This is going to be a great euphemism if we all pick this up. Like two Christians are sitting together at a coffee shop. Hey, I'm thinking about moving to the sink with this girl, right? <laughs> and the other person just goes, I get that, right? Yeah, like our own little language. So he's thinking about moving to sink with this girl. And here we go, verse 25, I'm sorry, verse 18. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Verse 19, Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man, so stay with me. Verse 20, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. So this gives us a little snapshot in the, in the way that marriage and engagement function in an Old Testament Jewish kind of context. And so let me just explain a couple of things that are going on there. Jacob has come to this guy and said, hey, I want to marry your daughter. And if you know the story, basically what happens is Jacob starts working. The guy says, listen, if you'll work for me for seven years, uh, you can marry my daughter. So he works for him for seven years, and then he has this wedding. Now, in, in, the, in the marriage situation, you know, there's like a tent, and there's a lot of scarves and uh, face things being worn, and he sees this woman of about the height of the woman he loves coming in, and she, like, all he can see is the eyes, but there's, you know, like a nose situation. Basically, she's wearing, like, if you're, a, if you're robbing a convenience store and you wear the ski mask, she kind of has that situation going on, but like a, like a, like a rocking dress, and so she looks good, and the photographs look great, and they look good on her walls. But anyway, so he's marrying this woman he thinks is Rachel, and then they go to consummate the relationship uh, but apparently this happens in the dark where there's, there's no, like, light verification. Uh, they're not, like, going to the Holiday Inn and turning on the lights and pulling the glitter out of the hair or any of that situation. It's just like this dark tent camping situation. And when he wakes up the next day after consummating the relationship in the light of day, he goes, oh, my, it's Leah, right? Like, oh, I have slept with the wrong woman. Now, if you go back and read through this, and it's a really incredible story, he's a little bit upset, as you can imagine, and... He goes to the dad, like, this is first day of the honeymoon. Goes to the dad and goes, what did you do? Why did you give me this daughter? And the dad goes, well, it's customary for us to not let our younger daughter be married before the older daughter. So I gave you the older daughter. And he's like, what? I wanted to marry the younger daughter. And he's like, listen, here's a deal. If you'll just kind of continue your honeymoon, just finish your honeymoon, at the end of it, we'll talk terms. And he's like, okay. And then he goes back on his honeymoon, right? He's like, well, I've already slept with her, so I got to keep sleeping with her. And that's, that's like one of the verses there. And he goes back, 
finishes the week, which is to say he finishes his consummation period with her. Uh, so you can imagine what goes on there a couple more times, and you're just like, wow, this is a really like weird world of how people have sex and consummate marriages. Anyway, at the end of the week, he then comes back to the dad, and the dad's like, okay, listen, if you will agree to work another seven years for me, you can marry my other daughter. And he agrees to terms, right? He's like, sure. And that's the verses we just read. Because he loved Rachel, he agreed to this. So now he has a second marriage. And then now he's an indentured servant, someone who's working for this dad for another seven years. That's a crazy way to get married. Look, I'm looking at this like, I mean, just think about this, guys in the room. And maybe some of you are like, I'm down with polygamy. And that's cool. There's no judgment. But I'm just like, just think about this. Like you sleep with someone at night and then you wake up and it, I mean, this is like the worst kind of like reverse walk of shame any guy could ever do. Like, wow, man, I was really drunk last night. Like, I can't imagine that I slept with your sister and the other sister isn't upset about this. Or maybe she is, but we don't know. The dad for sure is on board with this. Like, this is a really weird kind of deceitful situation. But don't get sidetracked with this. I don't know why I'm telling you this. I think because I'm, I'm holding a microphone and I feel like I should tell stories. But here's the thing. When they actually get married, here's the thing that's important. I want you to note two things that are going on here. Number one, there's a betrothal process. What we're seeing in Insight 2 in the Old Testament, there's a betrothal process. And here's, the, here's what a betrothal process is. Typically, um, when uh, two people are hitting puberty, and maybe just in that range, parents will get together and say, all right, I have a son, you have a daughter, Let's just go ahead and agree that they're going to get married. And so the families agree on this. And then there's a financial arrangement or a financial plan that gets made. Okay, here's how he's going to work. Here's how he's going to earn money. Uh, So let's just agree to these things. Okay, so now they're taken care of. Okay. And the betrothal process from the time you get betrothed to the time you get married typically takes about a year. It can be a little more, but it's about a year. So 13, 14, dad sits you down and says, listen, our neighbor's over here. Yeah, the guy who used to pull your hair, you're going to get married to him. You have a year to kind of get on board with this. Uh, We've already had a bank transfer situation, so this is locked in. In about a year, y'all are going to get married, and you're going to have to have sex. So there you go. You think your sex talk with your parents is awkward? This was an awkward sex talk, right? This is like, you're going to have sex with that boy next door, or you're going to have sex with that girl next door. Get ready, right? Uh, You have a year. Just, you know, start saying your prayers, whatever, right? And that was how it happened, Um, But here's what's important about all of this, okay? And you see this in uh, the story here with Rachel. There there was an agreement, and then there was a financial thing that went with it. When he's working for him for seven years, he's actually earning income so he can support a family. The the big picture that we should take away is when marriage happens, there seem to be these key components of some type of betrothal or betrothal process, which includes a a family arrangement um, and uh, some type of financial kind of program that's there. What's interesting about Genesis is it's the first time you see an idea of marriage, betrothal, that is hung on this this idea of love. The thing that made uh, uh, the relationship with Rachel work is that he loved her. And so not only is there a betrothal process, but there's love. And love seems to be this component that's at least uh, mentioned in an ideal marriage arrangement. So I want you to keep those two things in mind as we look at a New Testament picture of marriage here. And let me just say this. I'm noticing it's, it's kind of steamy in here. Is it steamy hot in here for you guys? It's not just the Bible that we open that's steamy, right? It's the room itself is a little steamy. Okay, apologies. We got air conditioning coming on. Uh, we'll be cool. We pr- I promise we didn't do this just so that we could be like, is it hot in here, right? Yeah. 
Or is it just you guys? Yeah, all right. Okay. So second passage I want you guys to look at is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll start in verse 25. So if you want to flip over to the New Testament or on your phones, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, 1 Corinthians, as you guys may know, is this epistle that Paul, the Apostle Paul writes. And you, you hear it anytime you go to a, a, um, a, some weddings, right? Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Love is patient and it's kind. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs, right? All these things. Paul has a lot to say about love, but he has a lot to say about marriage here. And this is really interesting. Paul is writing to a church that is... In their day, they're not aware of global warming, but they're thinking the world's going to end at some point, like really quickly, and so they're a little bit panicky. And one of the questions that they write to Paul on is, hey, with the world ending soon, should we keep getting married? Because you've got some guys who are betrothed to girls or some girls who are betrothed to guys, and they're like, should we honor this or should we, like, not? Like, I don't know what the situation is here. Should I wait a year? Like, I know I'm going to get, I'm going to have sex with this guy. I don't really like him, but if the world's going to end, maybe I'm more motivated to try to have sex. I don't know. Like, they're just very curious about this whole situation. So they write to Paul, and here's what he writes. uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 7, starting verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, um, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So Paul is not saying this is from God to me, but he's Paul trying to give his best advice on this issue. Here's what he writes. I think that in the view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. In other words, the fact that we think the world's going to end means just stay where you are. Like, don't make any big changes. Don't go crazy here. Verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. Uh, The appointed time has grown very short. Again, the world may end soon. From now on, uh, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and let those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. In other words, we got to understand that none of this is eternal. That's our perspective. Nothing that we're going to do here, getting married, not getting married, this is not something that's eternal, meaning it's not something that's of eternal quality. It shouldn't be our most important thing. But it's of practical concern, so we should maybe talk about it. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things and how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. We will say more about that in a second. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed. In other words, we're going to be betrothed, but we're not going to get married. We're not going to have sex. I guess they're just going to be in perpetual engagement all their life. That's what he's saying. He will do well. Verse 38, so then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, 
only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have that spirit of God. And what he's talking about at the very end there is singleness. Paul's saying, I think I have the gift of singleness. So that's a lot. What do we make of this? Here's Paul's vision of marriage. This is the New Testament teaching on marriage here, I think summed up. Number one, there's a betrothal process. He's still bringing this Old Testament process of betrothal into the future. That people are maybe a little bit older, but families are coming together, making a financial arrangement, uh, making some kind of family agreement, and saying, you're going to marry this person, you're going to marry this person in an arranged marriage kind of way. So that's still happening. By this time, there may be a little bit more individual selection, meaning someone may, I mean, they have the, the version of Match.com or whatever, like, hey, I, I might want to choose my own person, but I'm still running my process, my decision-making through my family. There's a betrothal situation. But number two, rather than talking about love, Paul talks about passion for physical intimacy. Okay? Notice Paul doesn't say, you guys shouldn't get married, but if you really love one another, get married, right? And, you know, while this epic score swells in the background, it's like, and, you know, maybe Barry White starts, don't, don't, you love one another, don't, don't, yeah, baby, right? There's not, right? He's saying, listen, if you guys are horny, okay, you should consider that some type of, uh, you know, indicator that maybe this should happen. And here's what Paul means, like, you're betrothed to somebody, and you're thinking the world's going to end soon, but, like, if this, is, if this is her and this is him, like, every time they're around each other, they're like, <laughs> uh, we, we can't touch, you know. Oh, whoa, 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 right? Have you guys ever been around two people who, like, there's a lot of sexual tension, but maybe they don't talk about it? And maybe these are Christian people, and maybe they're virgins, and maybe, right? You know people like this, and I'm certainly not con- condemning or condescending any of this, but you know what I'm talking about. In your friend group, like maybe the naive people who kind of like each other for the first time, maybe this is a first boyfriend, first girlfriend situation, and every time they're talking at the kitchen counter, there's always this sexual subtext. No matter what they're doing, they'll be like, hmm, so this, uh, this coffee is... This coffee is good. And, the, and then the girl's like, yeah, I, I love coffee. Coffee is, it's amazing. I, I like to put cream and sugar in my coffee. And she's like, yes, that's a great way to drink coffee. And like someone is over here looking at this, like completely horrified. And you just go, get a room, my gosh. This is life group. We were just praying on the couch a few minutes ago. Oh, I mean, this is what Paul is talking about very practically. If you're betrothed and the passions are there and you're like, man, I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't get married. It'll be sinful because Jesus is going to come back. Paul's going, look, this is very practical. If you're in the mood and she's in the mood and y'all are engaged, there's a courthouse in a 72-hour window. Just go to the courthouse, get married. Move past this because these passions are indicating that there's some chemistry here that's driving you together. What Paul is not saying, however, is that there is this love that's driving you to get married. In Paul's estimation, marriage is a very functional thing. He's presuming that love is going to be there because of a a, a Christian discipleship understanding. He's just saying if y'all are engaged or betrothed in this context and there's passion, Go get married because the longer you hold off, the more problems it's going to be. And if any of you know this, like especially if you've ever been engaged, when Natalie and I first got engaged, I tell people this all the time. Okay, so here's my ring. 
I put the ring on Nally's finger and I was like, I'm cool. We have boundaries. I've got accountability partners. You know, I'm never over to her house past 10. I can do this. We're going to get, how long are we going to be engaged? A year? I can do this. And then we put the ring on the finger and there's this countdown timer that starts and it's like, you are having sex in one year, right? And every day I wake up, I'm like, I'm having sex in less than one year. Like, oh my gosh. And it's just like this drum beat that's like, do, 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 do. And it gets, it gets louder and louder every day. And Paul is just trying to speak to that practically. Like when the drums get too loud, bro, just go to the courthouse. Seriously, just get a trip, Vegas. It's totally cool. We'll pray for you guys later. Just seriously, like make that happen. So there we go. Number three, betrothal process, passion, Marriage, so understand this, marriage and singleness are both recommended. Look what Paul says, okay? Uh, In verse 32, the unmarried man is, I'm sorry, uh, uh, verse 38, so then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. In other words, you want to get married? Great. You want to stay single? Great. Neither one of these is the Christian way. That's what we look at in, in week one. Marriage, singleness, whatever, just follow Jesus in whatever you do. And if you're trying to follow Jesus and you keep stumbling over the coffee at the kitchen table with the girl next to you, go get married so that's not a a, a distraction anymore. Uh, But if you can keep going and following Jesus and not be married, then by all means, go do that. Marriage and singleness are both great. Number four, he admits that marriage and singleness are about a trade-off. And this is what happens in verse 32. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And let me just tell you, as someone who's gotten married, this is so true. Being single has its own set of advantages and disadvantages. But when you get married, it's not like you just you only get advantages and all the disadvantages go away. It's not like you get married and you're like, oh, this, is, this life is easy. Oh, this is cush over here being married. Oh, all those single people have it terrible. This is great. No, because, and I've told this before, but for those of you who are new, let me just say this. When you're single, okay, and just imagine this whiteboard here. Uh, in your mind, your mind is this whiteboard, and you think, hey, it's Friday. I've got money in the bank, and I've got time. What am I going to do? And you just go on the right whiteboard, and you go, here's my list of options. Boom, boom, boom. And then you look at it, and you go, that one sounds great. You decide to do it, and you go. That's it. That's how you make a decision as a single person. A mission trip comes up, and you're like, do I want to go to Jordan? I want to go to Jordan. Yeah. Do I have money in my bank account? You check with Dave Ramsey. You're like, cool. And then you're like, all right, I'm going to Jordan. Book the tickets. Let's go. That's your whole decision-making process. When you move over here by the sink, right, this is how your conversation goes. You're like, man, I really want to go to Jordan, and it's nighttime. She's spitting, you're spitting. Hey, honey, um, I'd like to go to Jordan on a mission trip. How much does it cost? Uh, like $4,000? No. Okay, right? Or she's like, She's like, no, because we need to, like, remodel our kitchen. Or no, or, well, let me think about that. Or, hey, mm, we're going to have to move some things around, right? Or maybe she comes in and goes, hey, I want to go on this mission trip. And you're like, uh, I don't know about that. This seems, I don't know. And it's not because she's not godly, and it's not because he's not godly. It's because now you have all these other things you've got to consider. You've got to make decisions for two people. You're no longer me. You're we. That whole whiteboard situation, you can write out everything you want to do on a Friday night. You can check with Dave Ramsey in your bank account. And- Okay, here are the four things I want to do. And then he's like, nah, I don't want to do any of those. I want to do this. And now you have to compromise. And so that's just this like rap battle back and forth as you're figuring out exactly what you want to do about that evening. And in the end, all you do is end up going to Olive Garden and eating breadsticks, right? 
this is a date night for most married couples, especially in their 30s. Married couples, am I right? Like, this happens more often than not, right? Okay. And you're not even mad about it. You're like, oh, we're going to Olive Garden again. But there's breadsticks, so I think I've, we'll be okay, right? Uh, then, I'll just go ahead and save the, the, the mystery here. When you have kids, now you've got three, four, five, six people's decisions that you've got to consider all the time with anything you want to do. So I'll give you a practical example. We hosted a surge weekend in our house. We have two kids. We had to think about where our kids were going to be as 11th grade boys are upstairs, and we had to talk to our kids about if they were okay with us hosting for surge weekend. And if our kids had said no, we wouldn't have hosted. As much as it was in our hearts to want to serve uh, First Orlando and serve the students, if our kids were uncomfortable with this, we're out. Why? Because there's now four people in our family that we've got to consider whenever we do things. Some of you are single, and your only decision was, do I want to serve at Surge Weekend? Heck yes, I do. And you were in. We have to have this whole, like, congressional hearing about everything we have to do where we sit the kids down. We're like, here are the benefits of this. Uh, some of them will get saved, and they'll be in heaven with you. And my daughter's like, okay, okay, but what are the negatives? Well, they're probably going to poop in the bathroom, and it's going to be smelly. Mm-hmm, I'm not on board with that as much. Like, okay, Grace. What if I get you a new alarm clock? Mm, I like that. I'm, I'm warming. Okay, Grace, what if I get you a new alarm clock and we buy Pop-Tarts for everybody? And she's like, okay, you have me. And James is like, I'd like to throw in some sweeteners in the steel. You're like, okay, James, right? Everything you do once you get married is um, going to be this congressional act to, to move anything forward. And Paul is saying this is a trade-off. You've got to consider this as you're moving from here to here. Sorry, I belabored that point too much, but I wanted you guys to understand how that is. So, here are the things that are true in the Old and the New Testament. There's a betrothal process, and there's some form of love, passion that seems to play uh, in moving forward. So, I want to talk about what that means moving forward into the practical steps for us. But before I do that, let me just run through a couple of housekeeping items here that I think we've got to understand. Here's some bad reasons. I want to give you some bad reasons for getting married, Okay. And I hear this all the time from Christians, so I want to speak to this. Number one, uh, you get married for self-fulfillment or for affirmation, right? I need to get married because when that person says yes to me, it affirms that I'm a good person. And when I stand there in the white dress and he has the suit on, right, it just, it fulfills all of my dreams I've had since I was a little girl. And this is God's destiny for me and prosperity and da-da-da-da-da, right? Bad reason to get married. A lot of people get married. In fact, I just read this article this week about a person who got married, and then on her honeymoon, husband was like, I want a divorce, and she was crushed, and it was just terrible. And partly what she's talking through is that marriage for her was about self-fulfillment and affirmation, and she never considered all these other things that were important components in getting married. So a bad reason. Number two, to cure loneliness. Again, you can be married and lonely. If you're lonely and then you get married, you're a married, lonely person. Marriage is not the cure for loneliness. Community is the cure for loneliness. And so getting married so that you won't be lonely anymore, uh, now you have all those negotiating problems and you're lonely. Uh, Number three, because it looks good socially. Well, all my friends I went to college with are getting married, and all my sister's friends who are younger than me, they're getting married, and I've missed the boat, and that guy looks good enough, and this is the last helicopter out of Vietnam, and if I don't get married, like, I'll be left behind like that Kirk Cameron movie, and I don't want to do that, right? Like, there's just this social pressure that if I don't get married somehow, like, I'm going to explode. And here's the thing I think Paul would say, then explode, Right? Don't get married because it's the socially right thing to do. There's better reasons to get married. 
Next, number four, because we want to have sex, right? Now you're like, Doug, you just made a, a big appeal about if you're burning with passion, you should get married. What I'm talking about is you want to have sex, and you're like, maybe if I get married, then I'll have sex, okay? Uh, here's the thing. You need two people to be on board with that, right? Just like, hey, you want to get married? And that person's like, okay. And then you're like, cool, I'm going to have sex all the time. That's not how that works, right? Just because you want to have sex and you want to find out what it's like, that's not a good reason by itself to get married, okay? And finally, this one, which I think may shock you, because you really love this person. Just because you really love this person is not in and of itself a good reason to get married. There are a lot of people today who are divorced who really loved each other when they got married. But I think if they will look back in hindsight uh, at the formation of their relationship, they will probably speak to the fact that they hadn't adequately thought through everything else. There's this Eagles song. You guys know the Eagles, this rock band from the 70s and 80s? Uh, they have the song, uh, Love Will Keep Us Alive. Have you all ever heard this? Here, here is the absurdity of this earth. When we're hungry, love will keep us alive. And it's like this guy singing it to a girl, trying to, like, help her understand that marriage is going to be this thing, and the love is the thing that moves their marriage. And he's like, when we're hungry, love will keep us alive. And a lot of those people died in a marriage, like they starved to death. Because guess what? Love won't keep you alive. It's an important component, but by itself, it's not going to help you out here. So now that we're very clear on what you shouldn't do in marriage— here is finally the answer to the question, what does it look like for me to get to move from um, dating into engagement and move towards marriage? Here's what I should be looking for. And here they are, practically. Number one, you need the three C's of dating. All those things we talked about last week, and they are, you need character, you need competency, and you need chemistry. Um, do they have the character of Jesus? Would I want my son or daughter to model the character that they're displaying right now? Okay, do they have the character of Jesus? Would I want my son or my daughter displaying the character that they have now? Okay, these are things you're going through when you're dating. Number two, competency. Uh, are, we, are we trekking on the same level? Okay, I'm, uh, I'm curious about these things. Are you curious about these things? I like to talk about these things. Do you like to talk about these things? You know, uh, I, I think sometimes, in fact, uh, in one of the questions we looked at uh, in the Victorian Instagram post, uh, one of the, the pieces of advice to the women of the 1870s was, um, don't worry if you're not as competent as he is, or fellows, don't worry about it if she's not as competent as you, because basically the implication is all she needs to do is just make babies and make your dinner, right? And this was kind of the, the idea there. Uh, and you, could, you should just see Britt's face when I read that one. It was, it was pretty classic. Um, but the idea was, like, the husband is going to be the one who thinks, and he's smart, and the wife is just going to be kind of dull-eyed and walk around and be like, oh, okay. And at that time, that's kind of what you look for. Is she pretty? Cool. Okay, well, that's all I care about. And will she make babies? And will she cook food? Well, again, maybe that works in some cases, but as I look around this room, I see a lot of really smart, competent women, um, and I see a lot of really smart, competent men, and I'm not trying to get you guys together. Uh, what I'm saying is, ladies, if you're out on a date, right, you're, you're maybe here, and you're like, hey, man, you know, what do you, think about, uh, what do you think about the political election of 2020 or whatever? And the guy's like, I don't know. I just vo I vote on who my parents tell me to vote on. And you're like, okay, cool. Or if you're like, hey, uh, have you seen any of the movies that are up for Oscar? And they're like, no, I, I just watched McGee and Me kind of in my room. 
It's Veggie Tales on like repeat, and I don't really think about movies, but uh, I really like to play with glue or whatever, right? I don't know. I'm just trying to paint a picture of like the guys, maybe not that insightful, and you're an insightful person. Look, maybe that works for you, but maybe you need someone who maybe is curious about those things. Or guys, if you're a really curious person and you care passionately about sports, and you're like, hey man, what do you think about the All-Star game? Do you think Anthony Davis is going to go to the Lakers? Man, it's so crazy what happened with them. And she's like, I don't really know anything about sports. I don't even know anything about anything. Like, I just, I don't know. I just kind of walk around. I read Victorian literature, and I really like it. I don't know, right? Like, if that's you, and again, I'm just trying to paint. Like, you're really smart. She just doesn't really care about the life of the mind. You got to understand, like, competency matters there. Because at some point, y'all are both going to be 40, and you're going to be bored, right? And whatever version of a cell phone they have now when they implant it into your brain, she's just going to be like, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. And you're going to be like, oh, I made a terrible mistake. Oh, my goodness. Right? So competency matters. You got to think about that. So character, competency, chemistry. This is where the love factor comes in. Okay? This is where the passion factor comes in. Something about them needs like you're just like, I want to touch, I want to touch, I want to touch. Ooh, ah. Right? Got the crazies, right? Some form of that needs to take place in your relationship. As I mentioned last week, if all your answer is, well, she's a good girl and she loves Jesus and we're going to be very happy. Well, do you want to sleep with her? No, but she's a good girl and she loves Jesus. So we're going to be happy. like, like, bro, at some point on the honeymoon, there's a thing that you do. And if there's no sparks, that's going to be, there's not enough alcohol. I'm just telling you, like, there's just, and ladies, that goes for you too. There's just not enough alcohol, nor do I think you should drink alcohol that much. I'm just trying to be very honest about this. Chemistry is fundamental. You've got to consider that on some level. So if you have competency and chemistry and character and in your mind, you're like, it's a go in all those areas. Here are the two things I think the Old Testament and New Testament speak to. Number one, community, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, community buy-in, community buy-in. The family, your community, it has to have some type of arrangement. The reason arranged marriages are so successful throughout the world is because what's going on is there's this community that's filtering through things and looking at your blind spots and thinking about things that you don't think about and saying, yeah, I think this is a good pairing. So it would be really good if you're dating somebody and you're like, I want to go be toothbrush friends with her. And like I think, and you go to your parents and you go, here's who I think I want to marry. What do you think? And let them give you good advice. Uh, Your parents know you and they know your blind spots and they know probably what you need. And this goes for even if your parents aren't Christians. When I was getting ready to marry Natalie, my dad was uh, not a Christian. He was becoming a Christian. My dad gave terrible dating advice. My dad's advice to me when I started dating Natalie, he was like, well, have you slept with her? And I was like, no, dad, I haven't slept with her. And he's like, well, I never buy a pair of shoes unless I try them on first. And I was like, okay. That was creepy. And then you did the, and it made it even more creepy. It took it to another level, you creepo, right? Uh, But that was my dad's advice because that's how he operated. And so I didn't really trust my dad in the area of sexual ethics, but... In the area of character and some of these things, just uh, chemistry and competency, my dad could be really wise about that stuff. And so he's, he met Natalie, and he was like, okay, I can actually see you two together. So let me just say this. You're bad parents, and some of you may have bad families. You maybe have parents who are just like, I would not trust them with any other decision in life. It's still worth it to go filter your engagement decision through them. 
Now, they may not sign off, and they may not sign off for religious reasons, meaning they may go, I don't want you to marry a Christian. I don't want you to raise my kids Christian. I don't want them having to go to church because I'm going to love my grandkids. They're going to make me go to church, and I don't want to get saved, and I don't want to get baptized, right? And they may give you advice like that, but guess what? Them just having an opportunity to filter through that information is an incredible asset to you. If you're here today, on the other hand, and you don't have family, like you just are like, I cannot trust my family at all, then it might be good for you to find some community, maybe your life group, maybe come hang out with us, someone on staff or somebody that you trust who's a believer to just get to know you a little bit and get to know that person so they can try to speak into that situation. Community buy-in is a crucial part of the engagement process. You want someone who's going to say, this seems like a good fit. That's, that's number one, the or number four, actually, three seed today plus this one. The next one is this, career path. You need some type of financial arrangement. Uh, love is not going to keep you alive. Uh, money is going to keep you alive, actually. Uh, having some type of salary, some type of plan. Uh, okay, and so let me just break this down to the most practical thing. What I tell young couples all the time, if they've got the three C's plus community buy-in, I say, listen, this is what you need in Orlando. You need a minimum of $40,000 a year uh, take home uh, that, that's, that's going to be something you can use. I, I think in Orlando, where the average, uh, the, the average apartment is $1,200 a month, uh, plus utilities, uh, where you have to drive for like seven hours to get anywhere, right? Uh, Disney passes aren't cheap. Uh, entertainment's not cheap. Just some of these things, right? You need at least $40,000 a year. And so I, I want to show you this thing right here. Uh, it's an Excel chart that I built, and I'm going to post it on Instagram later. We're going to send it to you. But I've created a percentage budget. So if you're someone who's thinking about this, it's a percentage budget. And so what you can do is actually where it says 000 annual income, you can go put in, it says 40000 now, but you can go put in your annual income, and it'll tell you, uh, what that percentage budget breakdown will look like. It'll say, oh, well, on this income, you can afford this and this and this and this. And then you can, appear, you can compare whether what you're currently doing lines up with that. And in some categories, you may pay more for rent, or you may pay less in gas, you may pay more in groceries, like whatever. But you can basically see if what you make is enough. And I'll go ahead and give you a hint. If it's under $40,000, you probably can't afford to get married yet. And so what I would tell you is this. When you have a job and she has a job or something and you figure out some kind of arrangements or you call old dead relative or uh, I don't know how you call them, maybe you use a Ouija board because you shouldn't, a cult. Uh, but you find some money, you win the lottery, whatever. When you can make $40,000 a year U.S., you have a minimum uh, covering financial plan. And here's what I think. Listen, guys especially. Um, even in Orlando, the, the girl's father... If he's in the picture, he's going to want to know, how are you going to take care of my daughter? And if he's wealthy, he's wanting to know, not only how are you going to take care of my daughter, but how are you going to take care of her to the lifestyle she's become accustomed to? And so just be aware of that, right? Uh, dads are not necessarily happy with guys who are like, we are going to be in poverty for the first 10 years. <laughs> but love will keep us alive, right? Dads are not going to want to hear that, right? And likewise, moms who really love their sons, uh, if the son is in grad school or for whatever reason and the, daughter ha the daughter-in-law has to work, whatever, she's going to want to know or you guys can be able to make it. But parents care about this stuff. And here's the thing. You will too. Because in the second year when you don't make enough money and it's a struggle, 
the financial pressure will put a, num- a lot of stress on you. And man, stress will affect your sex life. Uh, it'll affect just uh, the way you communicate with one another. It'll affect all these other things. So just do yourself a favor. Wait till you have enough money to where you can live on about 40000 a year. Um, and then you can get married. And here's the thing. And here's what I tell engaged couples. If you've got chemistry and character and competency and the family, friend, makeup, community buy-in is there, and you guys can show somebody that you make $40,000 a year, go get married, okay? You don't have to wait anymore. There's no more magic genie where you're like, we have all the five Cs, but I feel like there's an X factor I'm waiting for. There's no X factor. Go get married, right? Uh, At this point, if you're waiting on an X factor, uh, you are tempting fate, and I don't believe in that, but you are just like delaying the inevitable. So just at that point, it's a practical decision. Go get married and go start seeing what God might want for you. And if you're someone who is called upon to give advice on what it means uh, to move from dating to engagement, I highly recommend these five C's to you because we've seen it to be so helpful in our community. I did about seven weddings last year. I'm going to do about eight weddings this year. We see these five C's play out in all of our dating and engaged couples, and it's tremendously helpful. So just I would encourage you towards that. Okay? Okay.